Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to a special edition of Jam Tomorrow, the podcast that looks at the promises that were made at the end of the Second World War and what happened to them. This edition is one of our new specials to tide you over before the next full series of Jam Tomorrow. There'll be another one in about a month's time. In this episode, we're discussing ID cards, how they were introduced, why they were taken away, and how they may return, but perhaps not in the way you were expecting. Every decade or so, there's been an issue where someone has said the identity card is the solution. If you are from a marginal or questioned group in this society, we already live in a papers please society. Yes, people are very happy to unlock their personal devices using their biometrics, but that's not the same thing as having the government store everybody's face on a centralised database. We have to verify who we are in uh, you know, a million and one different ways to a million and one different people. And there's just a complexity to it all that I think is sort of fairly wearying. The words identity card are enough to drive some people round the bend. Others couldn't really care less. But why is this such a touchstone issue for many Britons? I'll be talking to a politician who planned to bring them back 15 years ago and the people who understand exactly how they'd work. Will we end up with an ID system again, whether we like it or not? Every decade or so, there's been an issue where someone has said the identity card is the solution. I'm Ros Taylor and this is Jam Tomorrow. From the beginning of the Second World War right up until 1952, it was compulsory to carry an identity card around with you in Britain. Then Winston Churchill abolished them. These days, you can buy a replica of the card from the Imperial War Museum for a pound. But many people think it would be a very good idea if you still had to produce ID on demand. And there are endless practical justifications for it. After all, we now need to prove our identity constantly. In fact, the Labour former minister, Liam Byrne, who championed them 15 years ago, still hopes they'll be introduced. We'll hear from him later. But there's still a visceral British dislike of being compelled to prove who you are. 
Boris Johnson once wrote that if he were ever stopped on the street and asked for an ID card, he'd eat it. So how, you might wonder, was he able to bring in compulsory voter ID? The answer is a typically British muddle. What happens when principles come up against panic? When a high-minded determination not to collect data meets a society that runs on data and personal information? Technology has transformed what an ID card could do, but we've seen these fears before. Uneasiness in North Wales concerning the number of cyclists, presumably on holiday, with only an identity card without photograph as a check. The story of ID cards goes to the very heart of our relationship with the state, what it demands from us and what we're entitled to ask of it. It's about our love of the ease technology brings and our fear of what it could be used for. That's why, at different times, people on both the left and the right have fought against ID cards or argued fervently for them. They ignite high passions, not least from Nigel Farage. It is completely beyond the pale. And we'll be told, oh, it'll be great, because it'll stop illegal immigration, it'll stop people working illegally. It won't stop any of those things. On the other hand... Why isn't this something that governments have just done, like governments everywhere else in Europe have done? The first ID cards were introduced during the First World War. Until then, proving your identity wasn't something ordinary people needed to do. You didn't even need a passport to go abroad. Usually only merchants and diplomats had them. So in 1915, there was a big argument in Cabinet about basically how many soldiers might be available for fighting during the First World War. Weirdly, the solution turned out to be to have a national registration, a registration of all the the uh, adults in the country and then count how many people might be fighting men. And on the back of that, an identity card was imagined. John Agar is a historian of science and technology at University College London. Even during the war, there was unease. Critics deplored registration as not British. What were we fighting for, if not for freedom to move around untroubled by the police? Did we want to become, God forbid, like Prussia? It didn't help that the people who were required to carry around identification were, in the language of the time, enemy aliens. They could be, and were, fined if they failed to notify authorities that they moved or got married. Once it had answered this question about just how many potentially fighting men there were, political interest in it entirely disappeared, so the system collapsed. But it was remembered, and it was remembered as something that the British state could do, and therefore in preparation for war in the 1930s, it was part of the emergency systems that were going to be brought in immediately, and indeed it was in 1939. So in 1939, a new register of all the people, all the adults in the country, was taken, called the National Register, and on the back of that, an identity card to everyone was issued. The main use of the card was rationing. If you needed to go to the shops to get food, you'd have to produce an identity card to show that you are uh, who you were and they should back up your, your, your ration book and would be the system whereby food was regulated and controlled. They also had a more unhappy purpose, to identify the dead and badly wounded during the Blitz. And gradually, they began to acquire other uses. Huge traumatic changes in people's lives, people moving around people's homes destroyed during the Blitz, you know, people moving and needing to show who they were, that they needed services, housing, food, that then the identity card had that purpose as well. So it began to accumulate other uses for basically the bureaucracy of wartime. 
You can tell how nervy people were by some of the complaints they were making, recorded by the Ministry of Information. Public still doubtful as to whether they should tell strangers the way and whether they should demand to see their identity cards first. Sometimes it slipped into paranoia. Two persons, when challenged by sentries, suddenly produced identity cards from hip pockets. Danger of this practice is stressed. The sentries may think they are reaching for something else. These identity cards didn't have photos. Some confusion about the need for filling in the identity cards. What for? To whom will they have to be shown? Why are photographs not attached? It's literally a sort of a, a folded piece of cardboard. It had a on the front a sort of uh, official-looking National Register logo, uh, but inside it had very, very basic information, essentially your name. But even things like your date of birth weren't on the card. So what a policeman could do is they could ask to see your card, ask for your personal details, like uh, uh, date of birth, and that could be checked against the much more extensive information that was kept on the register books. And that was the really powerful way this card worked, because you might come across a card or stolen it, and you might be trying to pass yourself off as someone else. But unless you had all that other personal information that was held centrally, it was made much more difficult. It wasn't the card alone that proved your identity. It was the ability to link up the card with the register. And once the government has a register, or a database, as it is now, how can the ordinary citizen know what's on it? Sam Grant is Advocacy Director of Liberty. The unknowability aspect of the digital nature, and by this I mean it's a lot harder for people to know what's happening with their data when it's stored somewhere digitally. And we already see this in in quite controversial use of databases such as Prevent or the Gangs Matrix. The Gangs Violence Matrix is a Metropolitan Police database. People aren't told they're on it and the Met shares their profiles with other authorities. Four-fifths of the people on it are black. Rob Ford is Professor of Political Science at the University of Manchester. He thinks opponents of ID cards simply haven't caught up with the real world. The people who object to these kinds of things are a minority. They are a very noisy minority, but they are they are a minority. I mean, we, we know this in other policy areas, and I find it puzzling that people don't assume it carries across. The British public is instinctively pretty authoritarian, pretty inclined to say, yes, please, more police powers, more state powers, more restrictions, if it brings us security, if it brings us health. They were perfectly happy with every single element of the COVID restrictions on the grounds that this is the government restricting your freedoms to protect your health. There was none of it, really, that there was any major controversy about. These shouty Lawrence Fox types are a small minority of the public. So that's point number one. The vaccine passport scheme is a nice illustration of the fact that the public would be perfectly happy with this kind of thing if there's a clear case for it. There's there's really not a controversy here in the way that those who criticise this kind of thing claim there is. They are in the minority, quite substantially so. Secondly, it demonstrates that schemes like this can enable the enactment of policy in a more frictionless way. There are an awful lot of friction points in British society currently that would be much smoother transactionally if we had universal easy access ID of some form, digital or physical. The whole COVID experience illustrated something that I think also often gets forgotten in this debate. 
The argument is made, oh, we don't want the state intruding in our lives in this way. Well, from my perspective, that ship has sailed. All of us leave a massive digital vapor trail all the time. If any agent of the government wanted to track down any of us, you know, you're carrying around a device in your pocket the whole time that they can use to geolocate you, where they can get all the information they want about you without a great deal of difficulty. Every time you log into a computer, same deal. This idea that we live in a sort of Shakespearean world where people have a right to disappear, it's nonsensical. It's a kind of romantic fantasy. We don't live in that country. We don't live in that world. And we haven't done for an awfully long time. Edgar Whitley is an associate professor of information systems at the London School of Economics. When the Labour government set out in 2006 what it wanted the new ID card system to look like, he co-authored a report that was very critical of their plans. There were a number of concerns that we've uh, identified in our reports, particularly around the idea of having a centralised database that would contain all of the details of everybody who's going to be issued with an ID card, we were very concerned about the costs of the proposed scheme. And there were also concerns around the use of biometrics in the scheme, particularly to ensure that no person had more than one ID associated with the cards and, and the system. The task of making sure people can't take on more than one identity is one of the biggest headaches for an ID card system. It was a big problem in the Second World War. It's a fairly easy card to fake, and indeed people did forge cards, steal cards. There was a sort of quite a, a boom in forgery and passing yourself off as someone else. And that could be used to get, for example, rations that weren't yours, other services as well. So yeah, it sparked a little crime wave all of its own. Edgar Whitley warns that this would happen again. But now it would probably mean stealing someone else's identity rather than creating an entirely new one. If I was a fraudster, I would rush to enroll. I would rush to register as, as Rosalind. I would rush to register as Edgar. I'd rush to register as Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak and get as many of those IDs associated with me as is possible. There are ways of minimizing that risk. But again, how you do that at scale for the whole population is very, very challenging. And that's the problem that all of these ID schemes have faced when there isn't a central register already that you just trust that it has been set up correctly. And the more security features that you add, the harder it gets for vulnerable people, say someone with learning disabilities or without a fixed address, to qualify for an ID card in the first place. Plus, all these checks and features are very expensive. The government has some pretty good standards for what kinds of evidence, what mix of evidence can be used to give you enough confidence that the person who is claiming that digital ID is the person that they are. But the danger, of course, is that many of these fall back on the kinds of things that people from stable backgrounds or reasonably wealthy levels of income have got a driving license, a passport, a bank account that you've held for a year and a half or two years, a fixed address, a willingness to share this data with the government rather than actually I distrust the government because of X, Y and Z. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. 
The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. One of the paradoxes of ID cards is that the very quality that people want them for, the ability to join up all your digital IDs into one identity, is exactly what makes them unacceptable to others. Liam Byrne was the Labour Minister in charge of the ID cards legislation. In the modern world, we have to verify who we are in you know, a million and one different ways to a million and one different people. And all of us now are obviously familiar with a world in which we've got to sort of provide so many different passwords and we've got to explain who we are to so many different institutions. There's just a complexity to it all that I think is sort of fairly wearying. And when you look at lots of other countries around the world, particularly in Europe now, you can just see how simple ID card systems, especially digital ID card systems, just take a load of that hassle off your hands. But one person's convenience is another's vision of an all-controlling state database. During the Second World War, the government quickly realised how useful ID cards might be. And plenty of the public liked the idea too. Excessive drinking, again, particularly by young girls. It is once more suggested that identity cards should show the date of birth to prevent people underage being served with drinks. Then it began to accumulate all these other uses and bureaucracy began to be quite familiar with this useful card. And so in 1945, even though the war ended, of course, rationing didn't end until several years later. So there was a, a continued use for it there. It carried on right into the early 1950s. So why did Britain get rid of identity cards? Plenty of other European countries kept them after the war, but we didn't, because of a young man called Clarence Wilcock. He stopped in North London in his car, and the policeman asked for his identity card. Totally routine request, which would have happened hundreds of times a day. Perfectly routine. But Clarence Wilcock decided that he wouldn't produce his card. He was a liberal, so perhaps believing in his personal freedoms, you know, that kind of liberal. We don't know the full details, but we know his political background. We know that he made a stand. He refused to give his card. And then that went to the magistrates. It's a relatively minor offence. The magistrates said, yep, you should have produced the card. But he refused to back down. And it went all the way to the highest courts in the land. The Courts of Appeal with the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Goddard presiding, consider this case. And even though by the letter of the law, Wilcock is absolutely guilty and he's told he's guilty, the Lord Chief Justice, the judge, basically says, it is sort of summing up, that this is an totally inappropriate system. It's allowing this sort of petty interference with everyone's lives. It was a wartime thing that has been allowed to linger on and basically makes very clear in his summing up that it's not a system that he would support, I suppose. And it's from that point on that the British identity card system basically collapses. It's a story of the judiciary taking on the government and winning, which is not something politicians usually appreciate. And in the following decades, they found multiple reasons why ID cards should return. 
there's something about the idea that you could list everyone in the country that no one can escape, that everyone will have this universal identity card. That has a powerful effect on some political imaginations. And often it's whatever the sort of moral panic of the day, who suddenly hear that, oh, if we had identity cards and this would be, this problem can be solved. It's seen as this very powerful panacea. But the problem that it addresses changes decade by decade. So back in the 1940s, the press was in a froth that there was widespread bigamy. People were moving around the country, marrying a second time, causing all these social problems. The identity card could solve that problem because people wouldn't be able to pass themselves off as someone else. And then after the end of the identity card, the Second World War one. Every decade or so, there's been an issue where someone has said the identity card is the solution. So, for example, in the 1980s, there was football hooliganism. And the Thatcher government considered that, oh, the identity card would be a, a solution somehow to football hooliganism. And then in the 1990s, in the new Labour period, there was concerns about a different set of issues, about benefit fraud. These concerns about benefit fraud can appeal to both the left and the right. For the left, it's about building trust in the benefit system and reassuring people that it won't be exploited. For the more generous, it can also be about ensuring that people with precarious lives, asylum seekers, for example, can prove their right to benefits. For the right, it's about cracking down on people who seem to be playing the system. But regardless, it means joining up information about people in a way that makes civil liberties campaigners like Sam Grant very uneasy. It's important to remember that These systems tend to entail massive centralised government databases spanning entire populations. So introducing systems like this would fundamentally reshape our relationship with the state. It makes it far easier for the government and public authorities to access a whole record across a whole host of different agencies and issues, whether that's health, tax, immigration, education, etc. And while some people might think, well, what's the big deal with that? We know and, and history shows us that the list of people who fall foul of the government of the day is rarely fixed for, for a long time. And we only need to look at the treatment of people claiming benefits or trade unionists or Muslims over the last few decades to imagine how data like this could be used and misused and used to discriminate against people in the future. For their advocates, though, this kind of centralised database is just a practical answer to the complexity of modern life. One country gets mentioned a lot. Estonia. Liam Byrne is a fan. What's been really extraordinary about countries like Estonia is the way in which they've been able to supply their citizens with a simple card that you can just literally put into, you know, a dock in your computer or your phone, verify your identity, either with facial ID or with a a fingerprint. And it just unlocks hundreds of government services without all the need to go through the rigmarole of the government gateway. And so everything from kind of paying your taxes to indeed voting online, countries like Estonia are just miles and miles ahead of us now. And the savings, my goodness, the savings just for individuals' time, as well as the, the cut to red tape that you could achieve, would be worth billions and billions. I asked Edgar Whitley how their ID system works. 
It seems to work quite well. It's not an ID card. It's a digital identity. It's all done online. It's also a lot smaller than the UK. And they also, I think, have a birth registration process that is pretty good. But even if you had to do the enrollment of the entire population, it's a lot easier to do it in a small scale country. Your legacy systems, your legacy tax systems, your legacy welfare systems haven't been built around different kinds of identifiers. And the scale of updating all of that data is very, very different. But while we may be very familiar with the idea of using biometrics to unlock our phones, that's not the same thing as submitting them to a government database. People also say, well, I use my face to unlock my phone or I use my fingerprint to unlock my phone. The key distinction there is that there is absolutely no need for your fingerprint data or your face data to go anywhere beyond your phone, because the likelihood of somebody picking up your phone or stealing your phone and looking close enough to you to be able to unlock your phone using their face or their fingerprint is such a low risk that it's just a comparison to the device. And that is very, very different to comparing your face with every single face of every single UK resident in this centralized database. So yes, people are very happy to unlock their personal devices using their biometrics, but that's not the same thing as having the government store everybody's face on a centralized database and then using it to spot potential agitators at coronations or identify criminals entering a shopping mall and hoping that the matching algorithm is good enough and the lighting is good enough that you don't accidentally incorrectly identify people and typically people of color, women, etc. because the historic training for these algorithms has been biased. As Sam Grant told me, that facial recognition technology is already being used by the police. They deployed it in 2017 at the Notting Hill Carnival, and they did so again at King Charles's coronation. The Met said this is to pick up the people who are wanted for an offence or who have a warrant out against their name. When the state can already identify you by your face or your fingerprint, the idea of a card is a bit of a red herring. There was never a chance that Boris Johnson would be able to eat his ID card if a police officer demanded it. For a start, it would be made of plastic and he'd have to eat a microchip. But once the state can access data about you, data that you have no control over, by using facial recognition technology, the issue of whether we need to carry around cards to identify ourselves for the police is simply redundant. We just haven't faced up to it yet because its facial recognition technology is presented as a way to monitor criminals or foreigners, not law-abiding Britons. But the public face of government-issued ID as a way to pay taxes and claim benefits is well on its way. I kind of think that we will get there now. We will kind of reinvent ID cards for the digital era based on a lot of the biometric technology that most of us supply in order to get a passport. Sam Grant agrees state ID is coming. Now, this is more of a rollout of ID systems by stealth, and we're not entirely sure what this is going to look like. We keep hearing announcements about legislation and new departments being set up in government, but no clear proposals. Sometimes the state will get it wrong, particularly if they're in a hurry 
and schemes like these are often rolled out in a hurry to fix an urgent problem. Most government services is government giving money, COVID loans being the classic example. Oh, we set up a company that has 500 employees yesterday and we want to claim COVID loans. Okay, it's not an ID one, but it's that kind of, and there's growing evidence of organized crime not being stupid and saying, let's see how many of these things we can breach. And if you're doing it quickly because there is a pandemic and you don't want all the companies to go bust, that balance between get it working and get enough checks in place is an interesting balance that perhaps didn't work so well there. But equally, you would hope that the government has learned that you don't just give everybody who wants one an ID because you could just going to replicate that problem. And while a government-issued ID would be presented as a way to access services, it's easy to imagine how it could be linked to the NHS, especially in the event of another pandemic, and used for many more purposes than the ones originally advertised. There's little doubt either that it would also be sold as a way to ensure people had voter ID. And even the Tories don't seem so keen on it now. Here's Jacob Rees-Mogg. As dare I say, we found by insisting on voter ID for elections, and we found that the people who didn't have ID were elderly, oh, and they by and large voted Conservative. So we made it hard for our own voters, and we upset a system that worked perfectly well, was rather the glories of our country, actually, that we did on an honesty basis, when the real problem is with postal voting. We didn't see the levels of chaos in the local elections that some were fearing over this issue of voter identity. But I think that the general election could be a very different kettle of fish. A lot more people participating, often lower engagement voters who won't be aware of the requirements and so on. And if we get a lot of controversy over people being rejected at the ballot box in a quite high stakes election because they don't have the forms of ID that are being talked about, then... The obvious answer to that problem is ensure everybody has an easy to access, universally provided form of ID so that they can vote. Having that universally available form of ID would make a whole bunch of other stuff easier to do as well. But it would at least kind of demonstrate the problems that come from not having it to a much broader group of people than those costs currently fall on. This is a persuasive argument if you trust the government. But trust in the UK government has plummeted in recent years. And it puts the onus on you to prove that you are who you say you are, no matter how difficult you may find it to use the technology. Edgar Whitley describes what happened when the COVID pass was introduced in 2021. I had got the NHS app very early on. And I think I just had to give my biographical details, name, address, date of birth, which GP surgery it was, the same mobile number. And they were saying, yeah, we're happy. It's probably Edgar. We'll give him his NHS app. And that meant that my COVID status was immediately downloaded onto that. My mother, who needed the COVID pass to go into restaurants when it was slowly opening, because she didn't have the documents, had to do the the live video stream, reading out random numbers that the system had done. She could only do that with my brother helping her out. For someone with learning difficulties, or who's perhaps in the early stages of dementia, which amounts to millions of Britons, digital ID can be a nightmare. Still, there's an argument that not having ID actually discriminates against vulnerable people. To turn around and say we don't want identity cards because we don't want a papers-please society, we don't want to empower the state. Well, 
We do empower the state. If you are from a marginal or questioned group in the society, we already live in a papers please society. Anyone who's had to rent a house knows we live in a papers please society. Anybody who comes from a migrant group who needs to prove their status knows we live in a papers please society. The mystery to me is why when a majority of the public, 50 to 60% consistently say universal ID, yes please, the opposition is about half that and then you've got a chunk that I don't know. When you know that there are significant costs to not having this system, costs for government, and most importantly, costs for some of the most vulnerable groups in society, why is nobody championing this? So if Rob Ford is right and digital ID is coming, whether we like it or not, what can we do to try to make it a useful tool rather than a means of oppression? You can't predict how politicians will want to exploit ID, But you can say that there will always be a compelling justification for expanding the information they hold, the agencies who can use it, and the purposes to which it's put. Often, that justification will be crime. Sometimes, it will be public health. Sometimes, just as in the 1920s, when aliens had to carry ID cards, it will be migration. It's a good principle to hold on to. The more vigilantly the state wants to check up on you, the more vigilance we owe to each other, especially those who don't have much of a voice in society. Got a view on ID cards? Changed your mind, maybe? Tell us on Twitter at Jam Tomorrow and never miss an episode. We were really pleased with how much people enjoyed Jam Tomorrow, so before our next full series, we're doing a series of one-off specials, like this one. Next time, we'll be looking at contraception and how it transformed post-war life. If you enjoyed this episode, have you listened to the original series? Just search Jam Tomorrow in your podcast app. Find out what Britons wanted after the war and whether we got it. I'm Ros Taylor, and that was Jam Tomorrow. Jam Tomorrow was written and presented by Ros Taylor. And the producer was me, Jade Bailey. Music was by Dubstar and artwork was by James Parrott. Additional voiceover work was by Imogen Robertson. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. The home intelligence reports featured in this podcast are now held in the National Archives and are available on the MOI digital website. Jam Tomorrow is a Podmasters production.